Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering your people together again today. Thank you for giving us the hope that we have. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've brought to us this week, the good and the bad. And um, Lord, we pray that you would both work in us to heal and to help us in the middle of the difficulties. You would help us, Lord, to walk in humility and good that we've experienced this week. And we thank you for the good of hearing your word. We thank you that our children are hearing your word and learning what it means to be worshipers, to be disciples, to be witnesses. Pray that, Lord, you would just guide my heart and my mind. Let the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Without a doubt, uh, gospel readings like this one today in Mark 5, they remind us that when Jesus called people to follow him, he called them into his own ministry of sharing his life, of sharing the good news of the kingdom. When he called these weary, awestruck fishermen from their boats, he was calling them to himself for their sakes, of course, but also for the sake of others. Jesus never used the word evangelist. He used the word witness. Over and over again in the book of Acts, this is the way the disciples described themselves. And it's how they described what they were doing. They're witnessing to something. What does a witness do? They tell a story. They tell this story as they have seen, heard, and experienced it. This has been a central aspect of normal Christianity for two millennia. And here's the thing. It was the mainstream of, of Christianity, of normal Christianity for these two millennia in a highly pluralistic world, even of the first century. You and I are here today because of witnesses. But I wonder how talk of evangelism lands on you today. I wonder. Even preaching on it in these days, it's, it gives me pause. I wonder why. It's worth asking, right? Is Jesus still good and beautiful and true enough to merit our desire and our effort to hold him out to others? Is he? Has he changed? Or have we And if we aren't willing to overtly and actively welcome people into this faith, why not? Why not? Maybe we could simply ask ourselves this. Do we believe people still really need the rest and the rescue and the hope that Jesus is offering through His church? Do they still need it? Maybe the question needs to begin with them and not us. And can these things, this rest, rescue, and hope, be found in his church? Another important question. I heard a talk recently from Johan Hari, who is a British, a Swiss journalist, who who wrote the best-selling book, Lost Connections. He's an atheist. Um, And he says he wanted to understand why serious depression and anxiety have risen so dramatically of late throughout the Western world. It was also personal for him because for 13 years he was taking the maximum dose of a particular antidepressant. But he says, I was still in pain and I didn't understand why. Hari traveled over 40,000 miles to visit leading experts around the world about what causes depression and anxiety. And crucially, what have they seen that solves them? And from these experts, he found that there is actually scientific evidence for at least nine different causes of depression and anxiety, two of which are in our biology. 
two of which having to do with genetic predispositions and changes in the brain. But the other seven in particular are not actually in our biology. They're in the way we live. We shouldn't be surprised. You're far more likely to become depressed if you have limited, meaningful contact with others. If all your contact is infrequent and shallow. In the 2019 study, 39% of people said they no longer feel close to anyone. How does it make you feel? According to the study, America is the loneliest country in the world. If you lack any control in your job or other areas of your life, or if you rarely, you rarely get out into nature, you're more likely to be depressed and anxious. And what unites a lot of these, all of them but many, have to do with our psychological needs. A feeling that you belong, that you have meaning and purpose, that others see and value you, and that you have a future that makes sense. It's kind of obvious, I think, maybe. But he, as he goes on to say, this culture we've built is good at a lot of things, but we are getting worse and worse at meeting these kinds of needs. The World Health Organization, based on the best scientific evidence available to them, to us, has been trying to tell us this for years. If you're depressed and you're anxious, you're not mainly a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. In their official statement at the World Health Day in 2017, one of the leading doctors at the United Nations said, we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances in the way we live. In a study by the late Dr. John uh, Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, he was the founder of the field of social neuroscience. He was the, the expert on loneliness, you could call him. He said that throughout history, we are the first humans to deviate from collaboration as our basic way of life. We have disbanded, he said, and it's making us feel awful. Instead of our tribes, so to speak, being about collaboration and being about community, they are ideological and they are diffuse, thin. They are focused primarily on others with whom we are. We are tribal, but not for the sake of one another. You might say the context for meeting our basic social needs has either been warped or buried under the technological isolation of our age. Do you feel it? And do you feel it for the world? I do. I hope you do. One of the most poignant things that Hari says is this. In our culture, when people are struggling, we tend to say, well, you just need to be you. Be yourself. But what we really need to be saying is be us. Be we. What does that mean to us as the church? Let me just mention It's based on 30 years of research by a doctor named Tim Casa. He's at Knox College. He said we are depressed and anxious because of junk values. In other words, the more you believe you can buy and or display your way into a better life, the more susceptible you are to depression and anxiety. The seemingly most tangible things that we can control and have, and especially in a performative world out there, these are the things we've been telling ourselves will make us happier. And do they? Are they? Clearly not. Why? Dr. Casa, he said this, because we live in a machine 
designed to get us to neglect what is actually important about life. Who made the machine? Who made the machine? Hari's conclusion is this. Our pain actually has meaning. Our emotional struggles are not simply a malfunction. They're a signal. They're not simply a malfunction. They're a signal. They're telling us something about ourselves. They're telling us something about life itself, something about the machine we live in, the machine we have made. Why would we do such a thing? Why would we make such a machine, such a society and culture? Because our isolation is actually far deeper than fractured communities and junk values. This is exactly what the Gospel is signaling. We keep making a world to buffer us from our sense of isolation from God. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you still feel it. We keep making a world to buffer us from our sense of isolation from God. We keep hiding behind our fig leaves. But the truth is, and the Gospel says, that this God from whom we hide or feel isolated loved us and came to us and He felt what we feel and He suffered what we suffer and him, Himself, He Himself was caught in the machine of His own era of what they had made, and it did its worst to him, but it could not, and it did not reduce him or erase him or rob him of humanity, and he did all of this for us. And that's what we're witnesses of. This is what he's offering us. This is what we're trying to tell the world. The ministry of Jesus was and is, if we will look honestly It's the ministry of showing people what God is like. Of how He feels toward us. And what He's done for us. He is compassionate. He is a seer of the unseen. He is a lover of the isolated. He's a redeemer of broken stories. He's the source of of a hopeful future. And He's the truth-telling liberator from self-centeredness and junk values. His ministry was not merely a message either. Wasn't. Wasn't a philosophy or a spirituality. His ministry was a new community wherein people belong. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Well, maybe one of the harder parts. A new community wherein people belong, where life has meaning and purpose, where people are seen and valued, not isolated in their struggles. In this community, we have a future that makes sense, even if our present circumstances do not. And I suppose we should ask ourselves, is this the church or or this the story the church in America is telling? Has been telling? Or is it something else? There are two concerns worth mentioning. And then I'm going to spend a little time in this miracle on the shores of Gennesaret. We're going to learn some things from that. But here are the two concerns. First, the church in America has often organized itself as something other than a community, as I just described it. And that's clearly out of step with everything we see in the early church, everything that the early church understood Jesus to be doing through them. We find ourselves griping that younger generations are leaving the church, but we should instead be lamenting that the church has been part of the machine. Y'all know I just... Try to tell it like it is, right? 
Suffice it to say, we've come to be known for some of the content of the gospel, but a lot less of the context. A community of patient and persistent grace, of humility, of servanthood, of mutuality, of healing and instruction. The second concern is similar, but I think it's distinct from this. To the extent we've been unwilling to be a witnessing community, a community that has a story to tell and and an invitation to give, we've inadvertently said that we believe the gospel, as good as it is, is just for us. And we might hide behind pluralism and tolerance, but the truth is, yeah, our culture tells us it's not very respectful or tolerant to push your beliefs on others. And of course they say that, but it's a category mistake. Christian witness is as much hospitality as it is proclamation. It's not hostile, but it is clear, and it is contagious, and it is good news. We need to make sure that it is that, don't we? In the 5th century, St. Augustine said the essence of sin is incurvatus in se, curving in upon oneself. To the degree the church has curved in upon ourselves in terms of the call to witness, we've got to repent and be healed of a sin of selfishness. And again, that has taken on two different looks, right? Two different styles. But the truth is the gospel is Jesus, and it's a community. This is fundamentally the truth that Holy Communion imparts to us, right? As a sign, a sacrament, we say, but also a signal. It's a signal. The bread and wine are the sign of what I'm talking about, of Christ's loving, sacrificial, and empowering presence to us. In them we receive Jesus. Mystically, powerfully, intellectually, physically, all receive Jesus. But this meal is also a signal, as I said, to our essential presence to one another. We receive it together. We receive it together. It's the enacted, embodied, weekly reminder that we are sharing Christ, but we're also sharing in Christ, and we are sharing Christ beyond us, that we belong to God. It's a signal. And that, it, that we belong to one another. It's a reminder. It says we are indeed hungry. We're hungry. We're in need. We need Jesus and all that He offers. And the truth is we need each other in the best possible way. And Jesus has given us both. By giving Himself to us, to you, He has given you to others, to me. I need you, and you need me. And if that reality conditions the way we live together, I think it's going to change the way we think and speak and organize and act, just generally. Jesus has given us Himself and He's given us each other. And through us, He is offering both to the world. Holy Communion as a radical act of love challenges us to see the corners of that table extending into every area of our lives through us. It's the hospitality of the God who came for us. It's taking the riches of communion out into the shared struggles of an otherwise isolated and harried humankind. So I want to offer three brief thoughts about, from our gospel story. First, witness is a humbling effort. It's humbling. It ain't easy. 
And I want you to just think about Peter as he's being called. He's in the throes of his calling in this moment. And like him, we're sinners. And we know it. And it's our own sense of unknowing and our fear and our doubt. And what if I don't get it right? That would, might keep us from enough confidence to witness to Christ or even to follow Him. Like Peter, we feel the gap between us and the Lord. We feel the gap between the kind of faith we want to have and the faith we actually do have. We feel it. But that's just it. Here's the great news. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Let me put it another way. Our confidence is not in our level of confidence. Does that make sense? Our faith is not in our own faith. Our confidence is is in Jesus. You'll notice that that gap Peter feels, it doesn't deter Jesus. He says, come on. That's because our faith, again, is not in our own faith. Peter was going to absolutely tank and mess it up. Jesus knew. So honestly, it's this humility that actually ends up curving us outward because it's not about us. It's not from us. It's from Him. It limits our tendency to try to control others in our evangelism, to operate out of fear in our witness, or to concern ourselves with what they will think. It allows us to do the work within the context of our willingness, of our actual love for others, to hold out our hands to others and to let Him fill them. Isn't that interesting, I think, as a concept that we receive from Christ, but then when we go to offer, He's got to fill our hands. Sometimes, frankly, we simply need to accept the fact that there really is absolutely nothing better that we can offer someone than Jesus' loving message expressed through our loving effort, even if it don't stick. What, what, else, what better do we have to give them? Second, witness is a joint effort. You might have been told at some point in your life that you need to go door to door. Well, maybe. But the question is, who's got your back? Into, into what are you inviting people? A, way, a different way of thinking? Right? Witness is a joint effort. It's too great a catch for any one of us, and it's fundamentally a message that is tied to the medium of community. Effective witness and evangelism requires effective communities. It's all boats in the water. All boats in the water. It's withering to think about just honestly for me. I mean, and I know that there are plenty of people who are gifted in this, but you know, here I am standing in these clothes. And the idea of, of, of just personal evangelism at the table in the restaurant or whatever is just uncomfortable. But it's all boats in the water for most of us, right? To be honest, and I think the brand of Christianity that, I, that plagues our witness in America is the result of this very problem where this significant era of evangelism in America is divorced, it's divorced conversion from discipleship, from conversion and, and, and faith from the church, from community. We got people saved for the afterlife, but we didn't prepare them to live in the world with Jesus as Lord. We left them prey to nationalism, materialism, tribalism, selfism, and all the other isms out there. And you might say the greatest sin of modern evangelicalism is that we thought the number of fish mattered more than the number and quality of our boats. I just think it's true. The fish, so to speak, are barely out of the water. 
in the shallows and susceptible to all sorts of, of half-understandings. And this is not, I'm not trying to throw coals all over us. I'm just saying we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. The solution to the problem of Christianity in America isn't more of the same. It isn't, you know, we're not going to fix it with sweeping initiatives and wholesale messages. I don't think so. We're certainly not going to fix it with national politics. I'm sorry to break the news to you. We ain't. It will only be because followers of Jesus do what they've always done when the church was as deep as it was wide. What? They joined together, embodied, local, to be a tangible outpost of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. They weren't counting nickels and noses. They were just caring for one another in the, let's be honest, inefficient and messy call to be all boats in the water and to be with one another in the ups and downs of life, doing the hard and unglamorous work of living together in love on the fuel of daily bread, by which the kingdom is coming, by the way. Third, it's a healing ministry. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip, remember that word, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature man and womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. That word equip is super interesting in light of this story today. Catartismas. It literally means to mend, to heal. Do you know what it means to be equipped for the work of ministry? First and foremost, it means to be healed yourself, to be in the process of healing. It's the same word used when the disciples are mending their nets in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. Catartismos. And that's when Jesus calls them in those Gospels. In other words, this calling and equipping for witness is a form of healing our own stories. From this moment of Peter's shame in our story, right? Go away from me, Lord. Through his denial, until Jesus meets him again on those same shores, Peter is being healed for the ministry. He's being healed even as he finds himself doing the work of a healer, an equipper, a witness. Do you see yourself that way? Do we see the ministry of the church this way? This is a heartbreaking story. I have a friend in Phoenix. He's the director of outreach and missions. A big church, big evangelical church. Been around since the 70s. You know, they just built big building after big building after big building, right? They initially, when he came, they resisted the Alpha course on grounds that it wasn't making strong enough arguments while letting people say all sorts of wrong things. But what was it doing? They couldn't see it, that Alpha is setting a table. It's inviting people into conversation and community. It is going and it is, a, it is addressing the very things that Jesus addressed in His ministries, the felt needs and the reality that's there. Maybe the isolation and the wondering and the fear, the loneliness, even the depression. And it's presenting the truth in a loving and prayerful way. Non-anxious. Careful. Loving. What could be better for a society increasingly isolated, depressed, anxious, and doubtful? A place and a people. What could be better than an extension of the table of hospitality that's already a hint of Holy Communion? What could be better? If we're really honest with ourselves, we often believe what the world really needs is the moralism that can result 
from religious belief. Ours in particular. We just want the world we want. We all want that, right? We're all kind of a little pharisaical in that way. That was the worldview of the Pharisees, at least most of them. And the scary part is they were well-meaning. They were sincere. But they had lost the plot that Israel was called to be a light and a hope to the whole world. So friends, an anxious church that's just clamoring very often to regain or retain some significance, platform, and even power in the West is certainly no help to an anxious world sinking into a mire of meaninglessness. What a tragic irony. Christians out there on social media wringing our hands and shaking our fists as though the world is to blame for the ground the church has lost or is losing. If that's our posture... All we have to offer them is more of what they're already buried in. Let me say that again. If that's our posture toward the world, all we have to offer them is more of what they're already buried in. That's not all we have to offer the world. We have the promise that Jesus will build His church through the ministry of healing and hope. Man, that's great news. Because right? He's healing us for a wounded world. It's not complete. Not by a long sight, at least in my life. He's doing it. He's feeding us for a hungry world. He's encouraging us for a depressed world. He's offering us peace for an anxious world. And I suppose the question is and always will be, when He tells us to push our boats out into deeper water and throw our nets, do we expect anything will happen? And will we be ready together, all boats in the water, when something does happen? when He does what He promised He would do. Through us. Do you believe it? Lord, help us. It's Your work to do. But You've called us. And not surprised that the way I feel, and I'm sure many people feel when we talk about this, we're, we're just cognizant of the great need that we have to sort this out better and to... Lord, to understand more what you're wanting to do, but we thank you that it's always in the atmosphere of grace that you're calling us and correcting us. We thank you for the words of Peter, as I recall, who said, let judgment begin with the house of God. It's okay, because you're a good judge, and you're a great Lord, and you love us. We pray that you would lead us and help us. Lead us out in deeper water. Lord, help us to cast our nets to trust you with what happens. Give us courage. Lord, give us compassion. We need both. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.